singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoyed the show, you can help me make it better by liking this video, writing a review on iTunes, leaving a comment on the blog, or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Dave Asprey. Dave is founder of the Bulletproof Executive, as well as a Silicon Valley investor and technology entrepreneur who spent 15 years and over $300,000 to hack his own biology. He lost 100 pounds without counting calories or excessive exercise and upgraded his brain by more than 20 IQ points. So uh, today, of course, obviously the topic will be biohacking, and I'm incredibly happy to welcome Dave Asprey to my show. Welcome, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. A big fan. Fantastic. So uh, let me ask you this. If you were to introduce yourself in your own few words, how would you do that best? Sometimes I say I'm a professional biohacker. Other times I'd say I've spent the last 15 years and $300,000 upgrading every system in my body that I can. Things like that usually uh, usually suffice. Sometimes I also will say I'm the Heisenberg of coffee, depending on who I'm talking to. You have to be a fan of Breaking Bad for that to make sense. But. So, so you are kind of bio-upgraded, uh, but why, why call yourself the bulletproof executive then? If you're all about biohacking, why not throw the, say, the, the <clears throat> biohacker or something like that? It's interesting when you talk with people language matters so very much, very precise language. And if I talk about doing something, I, I could be the exercise executive, right? But what do you get from, from exercise other than tired? <laughs> uh, so I'm looking at what do you get from embracing the idea that if you control your environment around you and you control the programming in your nervous system and you decide how you want to modify the energy production in your cells and, and you become in charge of those things, what you get is you get resilience and you get that limitless kind of energy. When I say limitless, I mean like the Bradley Cooper movie. So those are the goals. And I'm trying to share with people, maybe people who aren't in the Singularity Institute or people who, who don't realize they have this level of control or that they can have a kind of resilience that they probably only dreamed about when they were 10 years old and put on a, a red cape. Uh, that you can come a lot closer to that than you think. That's why Bulletproof. It, it's about resilience and strength and energy. Mm -hmm. You said something funny there. Uh, what does exercise give you other than getting tired? Does that mean you don't work out? You don't exercise? Do, do I look like I exercise? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> I think you look more fit than I do. I, I use electricity and whole body vibration uh, for the vast majority of what I do, and I don't spend much time on it. My average exercise is about 15 minutes a week. Although, to be to be honest, I have done electrical stimulation two times this week instead of just once. And oftentimes, when, when I'm home and I have time, I'll do electrical stimulation, which is a form of exercise, I guess. I might do that three times a week. So you think it is possible to be bulletproof without the heavy, uh, say, interval training? That's kind of the fad right now? Yes and no. I'm a huge fan of high-intensity intervals, and I recommend them on my blog. I've had Doug McGuff, you know, Body by Science, on my show, the Bulletproof Executive Radio Show. And it's, it's one of those things where if you don't have access to technology, yeah, but when I'm doing electrical stimulation, I'm getting 
500 pulses a second for my muscles at a load that cognitively I probably am not capable of telling my muscles to do. So I'm basically bypassing the cognitive loop and I'm just telling the muscle, hey, you're going to be doing this exercise. You're going to be doing it in rapid succession with full-on power as much as you can muster. That means I don't have to use my finite resourced willpower. Instead, I let the machine provide the willpower and I get the muscle results. It's, it's pretty amazing actually. That said, 80% of how you look is what you do with your food, not your exercise. Exercise is, you know, is important. And we should make a distinction here. Movement is not exercise. I'm not against going for a walk or taking the stairs because lymphatic circulation matters and the mind-body connection matters very much. I'm just saying that if you look at exercise as a stimulus for building muscle or probably mistakenly for fat loss – then you need to uh, you need to rethink that because it's mostly a hormetic stimulation so that you can break something down in the body muscle fiber and then cause it to build back up that's what exercise is for for leanness and for having the right building blocks that's all about your diet and your sleep mm-hmm. i see so that's that's where i usually fail i, I do uh work out regularly but i don't i'm not and i i try to eat healthy food but it's Healthy is a arbitrary uh, category, <laughs> as we're going to come to talk about a little bit later. Uh, so, but out of curiosity, what kind of electrical device do you use for that stimulation, and what's the bioequivalence of those fifteen minutes to say an hour in the gym or something, or workout of some kind? Well, being that I'm I'm a biohacker, I have a um, proprietary unit that was custom built for me uh, that uses an unusual waveform. Uh, you can get different forms of electrical stimulation ranging from you know $15,000 units to $3,000 medical grade ones all the way down to $40 Abbelt Pro and you get varying results. Uh, I also use electrical stimulation on the brain, sometimes a couple different forms of that. And one of my goals is to make sure that things like electrical stimulation, not just tens, you know, the little tingly devices you, you can use to relax muscles, but real electrical stimulation and neurofeedback and blood flow-based feedback enter the realm of consumer tech. They should not be walled behind expensive guys with lab coats who decide how much you can get. These are basic technologies. We've had the processing power and the electrical know-how for 50 years to make these things. So we owe it to ourselves to say, all right, this is what a modern person can do to save time and to feel better. And if you've ever had a proper session of electrical stimulation, you can turn on muscles that are turned off. And it's kind of a cool thing. Mm -hmm. So just as a reference, if you wouldn't mind throwing it out there, where can people look at the specific device that you're using? Um, we would have to hook up. There's only a hundred of these devices on the planet and they're not for sale. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, there are, uh, I, I, I actually see. write about some of this. So it's um, a custom, custom device basically. Mine is, yeah. Probably and handmade. Sure. I would, in, it, it is handmade. I would encourage people to look at, um, my podcast. Let's see. I have one with, uh, Terry Walls who just gave a TED talk to one and a half million people. And Terry used electrical stimulation. We actually talk about specific devices that work for this. Uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the one she recommends. It was at the two to $3,000 price point. Uh, that's a very appropriate one. If you put that one on, you can do what she did. She stimulated her nervous system, got up out of a wheelchair after she changed her diet, 
to you know the walls protocol and the bulletproof diet have an amazing similarity she came at it from i have to reverse my progressive neurodegenerative disease uh, i came from one where well i'm tired all the time my brain is turned off and i weigh 300 pounds and i i want to be a successful entrepreneur and you know i will be unstoppable and whatever it takes and suddenly you figure out what does it take and i did the research and did the science so we arrived at you know 90% overlap venn diagram diets and we ended up both using electrical stimulation for different things so her recommendations for people are really good ones and uh um just google terry walls w a h l s on the bulletproof podcast it'll come up there's a full transcript on my site you don't even have to read it and i'm sorry i don't have the name of that device in front of me mm-hmm. and what about the bioequivalence the closest thing is going to be a high-intensity interval training. The reason I like electricity for this kind of thing is that if you look at how many times you can do a squat, th- there's things that happen in the joints themselves. There's little nerves that sense how close you are to damaging the nerve, and they're terrified of damaging the nerves, so you won't push yourself as hard as you could. One of the things I will do is I'll try and tell my brain that I did a lot more repetitions than I actually did so I can do them properly. The most expensive and most impactful way is electrical stimulation. The next step down from there, something I also do, I actually have it on my floor back here. It's called the Bulletproof Vibe. This is an affordable, very very robust whole body vibration platform. You stand on it, and if you do a squat 30 times a second, your brain gets the idea that it's doing a proper squat 30 times a second because it vibrates 30 times. And that vibration rate is determined by... The Russian space program research, where they're trying to figure out how do we maintain bone density in astronauts. And what do you know? Bones are piezoelectric and they start growing when they're stimulated by load bearing exercise. And doing this and just vibrating up and down a little bit really changes things. So if you hold a kettlebell and you're vibrating up and down, your body thinks you're moving the kettlebell 30 times a second and you get the BDNF, the brain derived nootropic factors, if I remember right, the stuff that grows uh, new new connections, and you get more myelination. That's more insulation of the nerves that carry information from the brain to the body and back. So what I'm trying to do is massively insulate my nerves and keep the myelin really healthy mm-hmm. because it's a common problem as people age and their myelin becomes thinner. And if you have neurodegenerative diseases or autoimmune problems, as I do and have had since I was a kid, the risk of my own immune system eating the the lining of my nerves is substantial. I don't want that to happen to me. So I'm doing things to keep my myelin strong. Mm-hmm. Dave, let me zoom out a little bit here and ask you this. Your bulletproof activities and coaching, they're not like your day job, right? They're no. your passion. They're your the thing that you do on the side. What's your day job? Bulletproof has become my day job, but coaching is is a small part of it. My day job for many years has been high tech in Silicon Valley. I was the first person to sell anything over the internet. I, I sold a t-shirt that said caffeine, my drug of choice to 12 countries out of my dorm room while studying computer science in the early 90s before the web browser was invented. And I was in national media for doing that. I went on to become one of the, the guys who played a foundational role in the creation of modern cloud computing. A company called Exodus Communications, where Google's first servers, Hotmail's first servers uh, were stored and housed using our network. Uh, I was a, a founder of the professional services team there and went on to automate that into an, something that looks very much like modern day Amazon Web Services, but using technology from a while back. So we didn't have virtualization yet. Mm-hmm. And 
Everyone's strategy for uh, Citrix, at least for the virtualization business unit of Citrix, one of the top two virtualization companies out there. And I've been a strategy executive or uh, a spokesperson or kind of head of corporate development sort of thing for a variety of companies that have really made big data and the internet and the cloud as we know today have made it possible. I'm still listed as a vice president at a company called Trend Micro, one of the top internet security, in fact, the top cloud security firm right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do uh, occasional keynote presentations and some blogging, and I'm one of the top 100 most influential cloud computing bloggers, according to the Huffington Post. Um, that's that's my career, and helping people is something I decided to do for free on the Bulletproof blog because it's it's not really fair that I got to spend three hundred thousand dollars. I had an early career success. I made six million dollars when I was 26. By the way, we went bankrupt when I was 28. The company did, so <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice time. But I, I got a, a, a small amount of that $6 million, enough to you know, pay off my cars and, and to be comfortable. And that helped me to be able to invest in maintaining and upgrading my health. So what if I'd been 26 and my brain was failing and I weighed 300 pounds and I didn't have that? You know, it would have, I'd be disabled right now. I'm absolutely sure of it. I, my so, brain just wouldn't work. So, so is that what connected sure. the dots between sort of starting in the tech industry and then going into biohacking? It was enlightened self-interest. Literally, I have a scan of my brain with radioactive sugar called a SPECT scan that was done more than 10 years ago now, if memory serves. And it showed all kinds of brain abnormalities. And when I started out, I had the symptoms of Asperger's syndrome, certainly ADD, but just even eye contact and things like that. My whole nervous system is very different and it's awake now because I'm feeling myself from a cellular perspective because I retrain my nervous system. I'm still working on some physical movement things. There are people who are far more gifted that way because I learned to read at 18 months. So I spent a lot of time when I should have been crawling and jumping and doing whatever else, absorbing knowledge, which means that some of the early developmental things that happen in your nervous system, like the movement patterning of this shoulder versus this shoulder, it's not quite right for me, and I'm hacking that now. Mm-hmm. So it, it's one of those things where I had problems, and I wanted to fix them. Because I am you know, a geek from, from that perspective. I have a degree in information systems, and, and I see the world as a system. I learned to think about how the body works as a complex system, when we're dealing with cloud computing, you don't know the state of all the other service providers. You don't know what everyone else is doing, yet you work with them as a system. And there's that old joke, I have a life-size map of, of the world. <laughs> it, it's useless. But if you get too much data, then you end up having a life-size map of the systems you're trying to manage. And you realize you can manage and influence the system without knowing everything. And you must do that to the body. And rather than doing the single variable analysis, which actually doesn't work very well for biological systems, I realized, okay, let's do everything that's likely to work and then back things out, which works a lot better. So <clears throat> what I've been doing is saying, what are all of the things that I can hack at the same time? And the scientist in me and everyone else goes, oh my God, this guy doesn't have any idea what he's doing. But check this out. If there's three things that are basically kryptonite for you, and they make you feel weak, and you test this one, and you test this one, and you test this one all independently, you will never feel bulletproof. <laughs> like You'll never get that state turned on. And the whole idea behind the Bulletproof Diet is it's a spectrum, and it's a, a one-page infographic you put on your fridge, 
And it says these foods are the ones less likely to be inflammatory for most people with the most nutrition. So focus here. And then it's okay to try these other things that may or may not work for you. But if you know, one day you say, I was gluten-free today, I was dairy-free tomorrow, I was egg-free the next day, nothing will ever happen. So get rid of all the likely kryptonite sources and then one at a time sprinkle them back in. And most people within a few days, they feel a bit weird for a day or two as their body adjusts. And then they go, oh my God, I have this energy like I didn't know I could have. That's what I'm trying to bring to people because that lets you turn on your prefrontal cortex. It lets you reduce inflammation. And then you've got energy to go out and basically kick more ass. And whether that means you know designing the next you know futurist thing, or whether it means just being a better parent, it doesn't matter. I just it's free energy sitting there for people that they don't have because they don't understand that every day they're basically putting on a kryptonite necklace, and that's annoying. So, what would be those three kryptonites that you described? There's more than three, unfortunately, but gluten is the number one from a nutritional perspective. There's food additives like MSG and NutraSweet that are shown over and over to mess with the way your brain works. They cause food cravings and things like that. There's damaged fats, which includes most of the omega-6 fats like canola, soy, corn, as well as anything with trans fats like margarine. So when you start eliminating those things, and you eliminate foods that basically are spoiled but aren't advertised as spoiled. We have major food quality problems because of the way we do processing. When your grandmother made tomato sauce, she would get the tomatoes and she'd toss out the moldy ones. I spent some time living in the Central Valley in tomato-growing land in California, outside Manteca, California, if there's probably two people listening to this from Manteca today. And you can see what they do with a tomato truck. It's you know, five tons of tomatoes. They back up to the back of the ketchup manufacturing plant. They dump them in. And there's an allowable number of frog pieces and bug pieces and mold fragments. And our biological systems are designed to have clean food. And then if you eat something that's not clean, fine. You get sick, you clean it out, and you go back to clean food. What we've done is we've taken our massive food supply and we've made everything slightly dirty, which is a background stressor on our nervous system. And it never relents if you eat like most people eat. What I found for me was that in order to perform at my level, I needed to not expose myself to that every day. And by increasing the quality of my food and the freshness of the food, I felt abnormal improvements in mental clarity and the ability to focus, pay attention, reductions in inflammation. So I teach people on the Bulletproof Diet. By the way, the book is coming out in Q1 of next year. But the infographic's free on bulletproofdietbook.com. You can just download this professionally designed thing that took many, many weeks to pull together to get enough information on one graphic. And it's stack ranked. It doesn't say only eat these foods. It says these foods are probably better than those. So if you don't care about the difference between tofu, chicken breast, or steak, eat the steak. But if tofu is like a religion for you and you just have to have tofu because you dream about it at night, hey, more power to you. It's just probably inflammatory and you should control for that variable. So it's not prescriptive so much as it's a roadmap. There's also an iPhone app on top of it. And I use the iPhone app. It's called Food Sense. Uh, Android's coming out in, in January. And what it does is it looks at your heart rate after you eat. And if you eat something that's making you weak, even if it's not on the list I just gave you, 
your heart rate will tell the app that something just happened that made you weak and you can go back and reverse engineer what caused the problem for you. So we're just using biological signals and knowledge of biochemistry to say, move the needle in the right direction. And it works. And it works within like a week. Most people notice giant differences. And I've thousands of emails from people I don't know saying, I didn't know my brain worked like this until I got rid of the crap. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's one thing that the Bulletproof executive is perhaps best well-known, that has to be the upgraded coffee. Yeah, Bulletproof Coffee is kind of popular. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you tell us what is the upgraded coffee and why is it different from the rest of the coffee? And I have to share before that with you, I've been a coffee fanatic for about eight or nine years with my wife. Uh, So I'm about 90% where you are and there's two small details that we have to struggle with. But let's get there. I, I love talking with knowledgeable coffee people. Um, coffee's been a major influence in my life. Uh, the only A I ever got in calculus in uh, in college was the morning, the semester they made me take a morning class, like an 8 a.m. class. I've never been a morning person. You know, I study computer science, like how many computer science people are morning people. And uh, I discovered espresso this one semester, and I got an A <laughs> because I was completely jacked on coffee. Ever since then, you know, it's been something important to me. The only problem is I've had a lot of autoimmune problems because I grew up obese and I had arthritis in my knees when I was 14 and just all kinds of strange things. So I noticed that coffee was making me tired. I would drink it, I'd feel great, and then I'd crash. And I was getting sore joints and I'd get headaches sometimes that weren't from caffeine withdrawal. And I gave it up for five years, five long, dark years. <laughs> I can't live without coffee. It was terrible, right? I, and I would drink it. I said, all right, and, and I'd feel good. And I'd say, oh, great, I'm not allergic anymore. And then the next time i drink it, I would get the same symptoms. And the next morning, I'd have sore joints, and I was tired, and I, I would feel great, and I'd crash. And that wasn't okay. So I finally realized that it wasn't that I was allergic to coffee. There was another variable there. So I went out there and you know, like you, I'm, I'm a coffee, call me a coffee snob, but I, I care a lot about coffee. You know, I, I enjoy different flavors and types, but I realized that I could predict which coffee with about 70% assurance, which coffee was likely to be clean. But as I progressed, I realized that I just wanted to reliably feel good after a cup of coffee, because I look at coffee as an herbal supplement as much as I, I do as a, you know, just a beverage. It, it's something that is uh, that is profoundly good for you on many levels, but it, there are also studies that show it's bad for you. And my research shows me that the reason that coffee has some negative aspects isn't the coffee. It's what happens during the creation of the green coffee, and it's what happens on the coffee plant itself. So, I re-engineered the coffee creation process where we cure the coffee berries or cherries, depending on which one you want to call them. And when we do that, we get coffee that's clean. And then I laboratory test the coffee to verify it doesn't have a set of toxins that are in coffee. I have a proprietary list that I use for lab testing that's core to the bulletproof process for making the coffee. And I talk about some of the toxins uh, in public. The most common one is called okra toxin. Now, you might think, okay, Dave's obsessive about this mold toxin thing. But here's the funny thing. The European Union has a standard for okra toxin. Singapore has a standard. South Korea has a standard. 
but the U.S. doesn't. So if it's illegal to sell a coffee bean in Europe, but it's legal to sell it in the U.S., where do you think they're going to sell the dirty coffee? Yeah, generally the worst coffee comes to North America. Yeah, and so what I did is I said, I'm testing and I'm going far beyond the standards that are that are there for uh, even the, the countries with clean coffee. And when you drink coffee with nothing bad in it, the difference is profound. And one of the things we did is we validated it with a test. We had people do a cognitive battery twice a day looking at executive and cognitive function. And what do you know? We found that the difference on seven of nine measures of executive function was much higher drinking even just black coffee from my beans versus beans from a corner store. So there, there's a difference on the beans, but the real magic comes when you take coffee brewed with upgraded beans, which are on you know, bulletproofexec.com, and then you take those beans and or, or take that brewed coffee, put it in a blender, add a couple tablespoons of grass-fed butter. The cheapest stuff is from Ireland. It's called Kerrygold. Better yet, you can use ghee, which is uh, clarified butter. And you add some amount of an extract of coconut oil. The most powerful is called Brain Octane. It's 18 times stronger than coconut oil. You can get upgraded MCT oil on the site, which is six times stronger than coconut oil. When I say stronger, I'm talking about the ability to form ketones, which are fat-burning bodies that your cells can use as energy without touching a sugar pathway. This is... You would get sick if you ate 18 tablespoons of coconut oil, but one tablespoon of brain octane will light up your day like nothing else. You put it in the blender. It has no flavor whatsoever. You blend it, and you have a drink that's like the creamiest latte you ever had. It tastes delicious. It's not gross or slimy or buttery or whatever. It's just amazing. And I, it took me a long time to figure this out, but when you do it the way I just described with the right ingredients and you blend it, not mix it with a spoon, you can't eat a stick of butter, take a shot of, of grated MCT and then drink coffee. It, your digestive system doesn't work like that. So follow the, the instructions there precisely or download them from the site. And then you will not be hungry if you eat that for breakfast with no other foods. You won't be hungry for six or eight hours. You can achieve intermittent fasting and even get cellular repair processes going called autophagy that would not be available had you had a normal breakfast. I do this just about every morning. Occasionally, I add hydrolyzed collagen protein as well if I'm exercising more and I want to put on some muscle. But for the most part, my breakfast every morning is just fat and coffee, and I have more focus and more energy than ever before. And there's two and a half million search results for Bulletproof Coffee on the internet. Like, I'm not alone. There's hundreds of thousands of people who do this to the extent that we sold out of Kerrygold butter in the U.S. earlier this year because there's so much demand for people saying, wow, saturated fat is the basis for my brain and my hormones and my cell membranes. Maybe I should eat more of it. And mm -hmm. it's, it rocks. Do you know the old joke about uh, green tea and coffee? I'm not sure. Why is green tea green? Answer, it's green from envy because good <laughs> coffee has doubled the antioxidants. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, and I've not heard that. Well, antioxidants are awesome, like red wine. All these people going around. Let's see. I'll raise my aldehyde levels, which influence my cancer and my my tissue aging and my arterial stiffness. But oh, there's a little bit of antioxidant in my red wine. You look at red wine versus chocolate. Chocolate stomps on red wine, and coffee stomps on chocolate. And chocolate and green tea are about the same. I'm a fan of green tea, but it's like a rounding error compared to my coffee in the morning. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> but let me let me. Uh... 
discuss a couple of this minor details because I know you're very particular <laughs> about the details. You care about about a lot about them. So I totally love your bulletproof coffee um, process, but let me talk to you about the roasting and the packaging, right? Ah, so, great. Me and my wife, we're buying coffee uh, from a cooperative here in Toronto called Merchants of Green Coffee. And we're doing that for two reasons. First reason is ethical reason, because for anyone who goes and buys a coffee out there in Starbucks, half a percent of the price that you pay for that, of those five bucks probably that you spend on that coffee, half a percent goes to the farmer, right? We buy from the cooperative, which means that about 50% from the money we spend on our coffee actually goes to either Africa or South America. But besides the ethical parts, the taste, and the taste depends on several uh, elements. As you said, the quality of the coffee bean is vital, but also there's the issue of roasting, right? We only buy fair trade organic green beans that we roast at home. And the idea here is being that roasted coffee lasts about seven to 10 days. And because once you start, uh, once you roast the coffee, you trigger the process of oxidization. The longer the roasted bean sits, the more it oxidizes and the more acidic it becomes, the more, therefore, the more bitter the taste becomes, right? So if you drink coffee that's been roasted today, you need no sugar, no milk, no nothing. That's why I drink it always black. But if you drink a coffee that was, you know, roasted a year ago, like the one you get from Walmart and been sitting in a moldy warehouse for 12 months or something, yeah. it's a completely different story, right? So let me ask you this. Do you agree with that? And if you do, I mean, why or why not? And if you do, why not sell the green beans instead? Well, one of the pieces of feedback I get on my coffee the most is that, wow, I don't need cream or sugar in this, even if I don't do the butter thing. Because a lot of the acidity comes from the way the coffee bean itself or the coffee plant itself is protecting itself from insect predation and from bacteria and more to the point fungal contamination. So the more stress there is on the bean and the less balanced the ecosystem is, then the more uh, the more acidic the bean becomes. There's also genetic variations, the different varieties of coffee that, that can influence that. So acidity has never been a problem in bulletproof process coffee um, because I, I select to optimize those variables as part of you know, how we how we create the bean. So does fresh roasted coffee taste better? Absolutely, it does. I just read a report. Starbucks has something like $816 million worth of coffee in inventory. And if you read about the history of coffee – Coffee has fueled revolutions throughout Central and South America, enormous slavery and human cruelty. And There's an amazing documentary on the topic. Uh, which is which is the one you're thinking of? I think it's called Black Bean or something. It's about the French Revolution and going all the way to, to Brazil and to Latin America. It's, it's a three or four part series maybe. It's an amazing oh, wow. documentary. I, I will find that. In fact, we'll put uh, put links to it on, on your show notes yeah, if you would. and they basically show how people during the French Revolution were more or less drunk most of the time. And the, the, the fact that they started switch, switching to coffee actually allowed them to start thinking about politics. It, it is true. The switch from alcohol to coffee um, fueled the Enlightenment in Europe. And during the Revolutionary War... Uh, Coffee was a very strategic asset. And you look at coffee consumption during the war, 
it was one of the pivotal things that allowed Americans to win or at least do whatever whatever happened. We like to characterize it as winning here, but certainly it allowed the formation of the American country, uh, despite the fact that there were some political trade-offs made on the back end in order to do it. So, you know, there are there are also lots of of amazing stories about how some of the the bigger, more I'll just be blunt, evil companies today, the really big packaged foods companies, almost every one of them has its roots in coffee. So things like General Mills and Post, these were all coffee companies originally. And they were fighting so hard to try and say, you know, my coffee is different, my coffee is different, that they became experts at saying their coffee was different instead of actually like making their coffee different. So I just was like, you know, I, all that stuff is, is out there. We know coffee has an effect on, on the way you think and on what you can do. So how do we make it better? How do you upgrade it? What are the variables that no one pays attention to? And the three things that you could pay attention to in coffee is number one is price. And that's what every coffee company, uh, other than maybe some of the third wave companies, the, the latest coffee people, the artisanal people who I have a lot of respect for. Um, everyone's like economics. How do I get my coffee for $1 per pound and all beans are the same and you know, I'll roast them a little darker and you know, put them in a nicer can and then people will buy it. And that's the history of coffee. So economics, number one. Number two, then, okay, flavor. Well, <laughs> neither of those is human performance. And upgraded coffee beans, the bulletproof coffee idea is that let me do every step of, of the decision tree for making coffee. And there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of decisions you can make what decision creates the best human performance? And it turns out if you make all those decisions right, you get coffee that tastes great, but maybe not as good as a natural process African. Of course, the natural process African is going to cause inflammation and you might be tired when you crash from it, but it tasted great. So I'm not about flavor as much as I am about human performance, but my coffee damn well better taste good. So that's kind of a long answer to your acidic thing. And I look for plantations that are either Rainforest Alliance certified, and actually a lot of my coffee is. Mm -hmm. and <clears throat> Because one way that you can actually experience that is once you, as I said, do the roasting, the mm -hmm. way we understand it is that seven to 10 days, the coffee starts getting more and more acidic. Once you actually grind the beans, then because you make them, uh, you're basically accelerating the process of oxidization. So we're talking about one to three days. Once you actually make the pot of coffee, you're actually bringing oxygen, H2O, into the uh, sort of chemical reaction that you're doing to, to, to boil coffee, to make coffee, to brew coffee. And that means that you have minutes to consume the coffee. And the easiest experiment you can do is like drink coffee straight after it was brewed or leave it to, to stay the whole day and then it's going to be much more acidic. And that's because of the oxidization that's happened for those hours that it's been sitting over. Well, so my my it, thing was the, like the, there's no doubt that brewed coffee degrades quickly. And normally it's it's within an hour. You know, it is certainly better the flavor profile changes over the first hour. But I don't recommend pre-ground coffee unless it's nitrogen packed. In fact, all of the coffee whether I'm selling whole bean or not is flushed of oxygen it's filled with nitrogen. So right as soon as it's roasted, we do that. And coffee naturally puts out uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, for a few days after it's roasted. Yeah. So if you get a bag of bulletproof coffee, um, 
it'll have it it feels like air in it but it's not air it's nitrogen and carbon dioxide so we extend that and also we have a very short we, we do the last in first out queuing and we roast a couple times a week so we're sending the coffee out immediately afterwards so even if you look at coffee a month or 6 weeks versus a year the difference is is very big it's so huge. it's huge it, there's no difference yeah. but it doesn't to my personal claim it would be doesn't compare to the one i roast before i have breakfast for example so fresh roasted coffee that you roast in your kitchen it it's amazing i've certainly roasted a fair share of mine do you use a popcorn popper or a frying pan i we have a a, a proper roaster but i mean okay. there's no myth to it i mean people used to roast coffee over the fire in an iron yeah. pan you know it's not a, it's just like roasting nuts it's not a big yeah, deal it it is it is not a big deal. And I've actually thought about selling the, the coffee green for home roasters. I think it's a, a pretty small market, and I'm open to that. You're the second person ever to request it. Um, one, of the, one of the things there is is you lose about 30% of the coffee when you roast it because humidity boils off and all. So you know, a pound of green coffee is not the same amount of roasted coffee. That's um, why most companies prefer to sell the, that, yeah. Oh, that's, that's not why, actually, at all. Um, you know, selling you're saying they prefer to sell green coffee or roasted coffee or no, no. Actually, I didn't make the point well here. Most companies prefer to sell roasted because they dark roast it and then they hide the bad beans and oh. because yeah, but that's, yeah, that's, that's the other that's the other thing there. If you look at what happens when you dark roast coffee, even if you're doing it yourself, dark roasted coffee, you bring all the oil out to the outside, at least most of the oil to the outside of the bean where it oxidizes. My beans are a medium roast where we keep the oil inside the coffee so it doesn't oxidize because it's not all like the shiny bean mm -hmm. sort of overcooked thing. The oily, yeah. Yeah, we've been taught as a country to prefer oily dark roast because of those high acidic bad quality beans the best. And here's the weird thing. The darker you roast coffee, the more acrylamide you get. Acrylamide is Prop 65 listed. In fact, right now every coffee company in North America says, warning, contains chemicals that may... Uh, you know, may cause cancer according to the state of California. And that's because anything that's a bean that you roast has acrylamide. But there's very big differences between a dark roast and a medium roast. So mine's a medium roast for a specific reason mm -hmm. to reduce that formation of toxin in the coffee. But the second suggestion that I had for you actually goes well to, to uh, the point that you made about nitrogen in your packs, Right, so we believe that the best way to ship coffee is in breathable bags, which means you either ship it the way it ships worldwide, which is in cotton bags, uh, 50 pounds usually, or in paper bags. And if you have the green bean in a paper bag, the coffee naturally breathes. Now, the idea is that, you know, you can vacuum pack the coffee, but my answer to that is that imagine getting the best pastry from a, the highest, best French pastry chef in the world, then vacuum packing it and shipping it across the world and having that and compare that to something that's been just baked and you can have it. Do you think there will be a difference? And my claim is the difference is humongous because when you open the vacuum pack, it's what we call the last breath of coffee coming out, the dead beans. So when you actually grind it, uh, and you pour the hot water in the French press, there's a bunch of gas that forms on top. That means the, the bean has been roasted recently. But if yep. you vacuum pack it, that gas is in the package. Once you open it, it's gone. It's not in the bean anymore. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't vacuum pack the coffee. 
Uh, in fact, in order, it, it's not it's not the vacuum packing process that causes the effect you're talking about. They call that the bloom. Like when you have ground coffee and you pour hot water over fresh roasted coffee, including the stuff you get from me, it foams up kind of. Mm -hmm. And you get like a, a nice layer of crema on the top. And that's a sign of fresh roasted coffee. Absolutely. And, and you, you want that. But in order to vacuum pack coffee, you have to roast it, then let it sit out for a while to off-gas the CO2. So it's not because it was vacuum packed. It's because it was so full of carbon dioxide that the coffee had to or that the CO2 has to bleed off before you can vacuum pack it. So it's oxidation before it was vacuum packed. So vacuum packing was invented in, I want to say, the 30s uh, in order to let one coffee company, the guys who became Uban, compete with other coffee companies and say, look, it's fresh. And because of the problem you identified, they put a coffee extract, a, a highly volatile coffee extract in there that doesn't affect the flavor of the coffee, but when you open it, you smell this huge burst of fresh coffee. Then it's gone into the air, but you associated it with freshness. It's one of the ways that mass market coffee companies manipulate exactly. the human nervous system. Exactly. I don't do any of that stuff. I take the beans as soon as they're cool enough to put in the bags. We bag them. We flush the bag with nitrogen. So the only thing in there, and they actually they're a little puffy when you get them. <laughs> the only thing in there is CO2 and nitrogen. And by the way, I totally, totally disagree on, on the cloth bag concept for shipping. The reason is that temperature and, more importantly, humidity matter enormously for green coffee during shipment. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, I pay more to get non-cloth bags that protect the humidity of the beans. The other issue we have is lead contamination in coffee. So how do you ship it if it's not in the usual uh, cotton bags? That is a part of the bulletproof process. It's proprietary. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but it's not a cloth bag. And one of the, the mechanisms of coffee contamination is, oh, the container ship was going to go through the canal, oh, but it, it got routed around the horn. That still happens frequently. So the temperature and humidity of the shipping container, where was it stacked, can have a huge impact. And also, those are not hermetically sealed. There's not a, a seal around the doors um, for the shipping containers where they ship coffee now. So you get these these big ships burning raw crude oil, basically. So they don't have any exhaust controls. And you get this stuff washing over the cargoes. And we have detected lead contamination in beans as a result of exhaust. So I want my beans protected, not necessarily vacuum-packed for green coffee, although some of the high-end guys are doing vacuum packing. Um, but you want them protected from environmental humidity changes that can lead to further growth of problems. Ten drops of water, oh, they're on a forklift under the rain. You know what that's going to do to the quality of that cup of coffee? It's destructive. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the beans are precious enough to deserve you know, proper treatment during. I think you make very, very good logical points there that I have to consider myself. So thank you for enlightening me about that. And, and I'll work on shipping you some green coffee. There's a couple people who want to do it. I'll, I'll see if I can just get my guys to, to send you a few pounds. Fantastic. So now let's say I am up for testing your recipe of the bulletproof coffee. So I have good coffee at home. Uh, I have um, uh, organic uh, grass-fed uh, butter. I have been actually putting um, organic uh, coconut oil in, in my shakes in the morning, but now I'm just going to try and do it the way you recommend, just yeah, the, coffee. The, the, brain, the brain octane oil is is hugely impactful. You'll feel that. Mm -hmm. so, so, so let me ask you, what's the time frame that I should be looking for to feel a result? How long should I do this to say, okay, I've given it a try, it works or it doesn't work for me? Um, 
about as long as it would take you to notice if Adderall is working. Uh, Adderall's prescription methamphetamine. Within a half hour of drinking the coffee, you should feel noticeably different compared to any cup of coffee you've had before. The first day, no joke. Wow. Okay. Now you I, regret me that I didn't make me regret that I didn't <laughs> try it this morning. Okay. I, I'm not messing around on that claim. I, I, look, I could spend my time writing books about cloud computing. I could go be CEO of a of a you know cloud security startup tomorrow. Uh, I make stuff I cannot buy anywhere else, and I don't want to waste time. And I, I'm not going to waste my life making you know the world's second best vitamin C or whatever. And that recipe that I just gave is gold. It has been fueling me for more than five years every morning, and it's it's been transformative. Not just for me, but I, I have thousands of messages from people with really big stuff going on in their lives who they just realized that they had a whole burst a whole in fact they described it as a power up from a video game like you're walking around all beaten up in one of those first person shooters duke nukem quake and you come to the health pack and suddenly you're back to normal huh. that's what bulletproof coffee does for you you can have two hours of sleep and feel like garbage and you drink it and all of a sudden like that stuff just goes away and you can focus and, and you just you have the power it sounds kind of like i really like the stuff I'm just telling you one day, do it right, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, you got my promise on I'll give it a week. Uh, and and I, I'm looking forward to the results. I'm starting tomorrow morning in that case, just to Lovely. see. Now, I think we spent so much time on coffee just because I'm so obsessive about it, but I really appreciate that. Let, let's move on a little bit more about uh, the Bulletproof diet here. Okay. How is your diet different from the paleo diet? I have no idea what cavemen ate. <laughs> and mine, mine arrived uh, through biochemistry and anti-aging research. It, it has a lot of commonalities. If you had to say, you know, what are the, the differences between the two? We arrived at a, a pretty close camp. Number one, though, is that I'm looking at inflammation even from cooking methods. And since I started writing about three years ago, some of this has, has spread into paleo. and I'm looking at this, cavemen didn't have microscopes, they didn't have centrifuges, they didn't have epidemiology, but we have those things. And paleo is not a bad starting point. It wasn't my starting point because there was no such thing as paleo when I started on the path. But I'm particularly concerned about excess protein consumption and different forms of protein. Paleo people care a lot about their food quality, but how many paleo recipes have you seen where they basically, oh, fry it in coconut oil. But I'm like, don't fry anything. When you fry stuff, it messes with the lipids. It damages some of the oils in coconut oil. For instance, the, the brain octane, the most valuable 4% of the coconut oil, that stuff is only heat stable to about 320 degrees. You put it in a frying pan, you've basically damaged the oil and you don't want to oxidize the oils. You know, you roast the thing till it's all crispy. You just got denatured protein, and the inflammatory response of the body is very different for those things. Mm -hmm. So rather than eating for what cavemen ate, I'm saying let's eat for what is going to reduce inflammation and increase cognitive function the most. There's also a question of how much fat to eat. And the Bulletproof Diet has long been a 50 to 70% of calories from fat, and at least half the fat being saturated with very little omega-6. More recent innovations in paleo have gotten up to that level of fat, but paleo quite often was more protein-centric than fat-centric. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are some of the differences. The other one is paleo recognizes grains are mostly evil. I do too. I, I am not a fan of quinoa 
or certainly not wheat or any of the other grains that are out there other than white rice instead of brown. Because white rice, it's just starch. There's not much else in there to mess with you versus brown rice, which has a lot of anti-nutrients. But there's a whole classes of toxins that are naturally occurring and some that come from the storage of food where I've spent a lot of time not just saying you need to eat fresh and local, but you need to identify what fresh is and what the biological effects of you know, poor storage of food are. And unfortunately, there's a major problem with the biome of the earth. Our soil ecology has changed the fungus that grows on plants. So I tell you, hey, this set of symptoms in your body is a sign that you ate food that wasn't as fresh as you thought it was. And those berries you got on sale were one day away from exploding in white fuzz and you ate them and you got brain fog. Well, the paleo people are like, a berry is a berry. No. And even an organic berry is not an organic berry. If it's a squishy blueberry, it's already starting to go bad. And, oh, my God, am I the most, like, anal person on the planet? No. I just want to feel completely dialed in all the time mentally. And I swear to God, if you eat a cup of squishy berries that were on sale versus a cup of fresh berries that were picked yesterday, you will feel different. And bringing that out, that kind of goes beyond paleo and understanding why. And then what are the supplements you can use to block the effects of bad food is another thing I do that paleo people generally don't. So those are some of the differences. Yeah, and I recommend to to all of our viewers to go to your website and download the PDF as I have done, and I'm pr- planning to give it a try myself. So perhaps together with the coffee test. Have you seen the new infographic? It just came out about two weeks ago. If you go to bulletproofdietbook.com, um, you can get the very latest one. It's it's much better than the old one, just in terms of digestibility of information. I'm really Fantastic. pleased with it. Okay, I'll I'll double check that and I'll re- yeah. re-download it. But I we're uh, kind of advancing on time, so I want to move on here. Let me ask you about this though. Uh, I have a considerable well. Yesterday, my last interview I did was with uh, a transhumanist philosopher from Britain called David Pierce, and his message, his final message was, give up eating meat. He is very well known as one of the founders of the World Transhumanist Association, and he's been vegetarian, born vegetarian all his life, and he's been a vegan for a number of years now. Oh, brain damage, poor guy. Well, he is very smart, very, very, one of the smartest people I've, I've actually interviewed. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> but he actually made the opposite claim of yours because we discussed some of those issues. I, I for example, argued with him that uh, in a population in India where you have three or 400 million vegetarians, you do not observe uh, lower rates of cardiovascular disease or diabetes than what you would expect if the claim that being vegetarian prevents those would be true. His claim was that in England, for example, according to him, uh, vegetarians had seven points higher IQ on average than meat eaters. I know you you claim precisely the opposite. So (laughs) why don't you tell us a little bit about why should we be or not be vegetarian or vegans? Well, no historical population ever has survived as a vegan uh, as a vegan population for multiple generations. My first book about epigenetics, which was published by Wiley and co-authored by my wife, who's a Karolinska-trained physician, uh, we write about this, particularly for, for reproductive health. I have a population of people on my forums who are former vegans. I've been a vegan. I've been a raw vegan. Uh, I, 
I share a lot of food quality concerns with vegans. The problem is that a vegan diet is completely lacking in the types of saturated fats that make your brain work best. It's lacking in a bunch of vitamins. And it's not that lacking in protein. The reason to eat animals is more to get the animal fat and certainly to get some of the high-quality protein. I'm not one of those guys who says to eat you know, 300, 400 grams of protein a day. You need moderate protein. But if you're eating moderate protein, it better be the highest quality protein you can get. And every time someone quotes one of these studies, oh, seven IQ points for vegetarians, here's the thing. You can be a vegetarian that lives on chips and Pepsi. Okay, you're a vegan, right? You're going to die. You can be a standard American meat-eating person who lives on chips and Pepsi and industrial meat that was fed antibiotics, that was fed crap, that's nutritionally devoid and is full of corn oil and canola oil because they fed those things to the cows. So is it better to be a vegan or to eat industrial meat? It's better to be a vegan. He admitted that it is easier to be what he called a lazy meat-eater than a lazy vegetarian. He admitted that on the show. He said yeah. it just takes the extra effort, but it was the right thing to do both in terms of health and in terms of ethics. Wow. So from a health perspective, there's pretty good arguments that say if you're eating grass-fed meat, grass-fed organic butter, and grass-fed eggs, that you are going to be much healthier from a hormonal and from a brain perspective. But if you're eating crap meat, which is full of omega-6 oils, and you're eating processed foods, which most people are, and you know, smoked meats that have been smoked using industrial food processing techniques, I actually agree. You shouldn't eat that stuff, and I don't touch it. I would rather be a vegan, and I'll, when I go out to eat, I'll eat at a vegan restaurant. I will throw away the soy and all, all that kind of stuff, but at least they have some vegetables I would touch. Mm -hmm. uh, I might accidentally bring my own butter and pour that on there, but... Uh, <laughs> In all seriousness, like the bulletproof diet people have more in common with vegans because of the food quality issues than others. It's just I don't know how anyone can ethically say you should eat soy or you should eat wheat. And those are major components of the vast majority of vegetarian and vegan diets. Those are harmful foods that don't belong anywhere in the human diet. But but what about the other ethical argument? So I, I buy the, the health argument that okay. uh, paleo people usually make. That is that, you know... Generally, I think if you, if you are smart about what you eat, you must have meat. You, you get all the proper fatty acids, and it's the healthier choice, in my view, based on my own personal research. But if I could choose, ethically speaking, I wouldn't like to harm animals. Let's talk ethics. So I spent some time in, uh, in Asia, in Tibet and Nepal, and I asked a lama at high altitude in Tibet, I said, look, you guys preach no killing. Said, and up there on your prayer pole is a yak skin. What's the, <laughs> what's the deal, man? And, and you know, he laughed. You know, this guy in a little crimson robe, and uh, he laughed. And and these guys love debate anyway. And he said, shrugged his shoulders. One death feeds everyone. And his point was that they needed the nutrition because they live in a rough part of the world, and they had no issues there. So mm -hmm. this guy would never eat a chicken. I will tell you, if I eat a pound of grass-fed meat every single day that I'm killing 0.7 animals per year. That includes the entire system of producing the beef. That means that there was no tractor that cut off the heads of bunnies and turtles and lizards and snakes and grasshoppers and locusts and ladybugs and all the other basically environmental destruction that comes from intensive farming. 
We also know, and there's a great TED Talk on this, that you cannot have healthy soil without ruminants on it. You need to have cows or in the U.S. part of the ecosystem was bison until we shot them all and fenced it. And that's what drove the Dust Bowl was the lack of animals tilling and fertilizing the soil. Since the meat that I eat comes from within a half a mile of my house, there's half a cow in my freezer and I think about seven sheep right now. I should say lambs. And how many animals died? Exactly that number of animals. There was not a single other death. When you are a vegetarian and you eat a bowl of some grain that's sucking the life out of you, making your unborn children less healthy than they otherwise would have been from an epigenetic perspective, taking years off your life and triggering autoimmune conditions, which is what grains are shown to do. Listen to my podcast with uh, Tom O'Brien uh, if, if you don't believe that. Well, okay, you could go down that path, but to get a bowl of wheat, you've taken some normal environmental things like grasslands and you've taken them out of production and you've turned them into something that is less natural. You've disrupted the ecosystem and you've killed most of the animals and most of the habitat that would have been there. I don't do that for my meat. So the only thing that is ethical if you are going to eat meat is you need to eat locally, ethically produced animals that are healthy. And if you look at my interview with uh, Glenn Elzinga from, uh, or the ones, uh, the guy from Polyface Farms, Joel Salatin, both of those. Um, Alder Spring is where uh, uh, Glenn is from. And this guy, he's so incredibly anal about his cows. He has 500 head of cattle on 500 square miles and they get to pick which grass they eat so they get the best nutrition. And he is a soil guy. He takes care of his soil because that's what makes his meat the best. We need to do that, and I'm happy to absolutely decimate every golf course in the country <laughs> in order to turn them into pastured grasslands. That would be an amazing thing. So it is possible for people to get good quality meat. It just has to be decentralized. And when you do that, the environment actually flourishes, and we know this. It restores desert and turns it back into grassland when you allow animals to roam on it. So we have to do this for our own environmental awareness. And I'm telling you, 0.7 animals per year if I eat beef every day. No vegan on earth can touch that. Mm -hmm. Dave, unfortunately, we're coming to the last minute or two here of our interview. So let me ask you the last quick two questions. First of all, where can people find more about you and your work? Check out bulletproofexec.com. And my podcast, uh, Bulletproof Executive Radio, was just ranked number one in the health category on iTunes ahead of uh, Jillian Michaels from The Biggest Loser. So awesome. You can also follow me on Twitter, uh, Bulletproof Exec, and we're on Facebook and places like that. Uh, my info is free, and there's more than a quarter million words up there for you to do. Fantastic. So we spent about an hour talking uh, with you today. If people were to take one thing, the most important thing perhaps that you would like them to take away from these 60 minutes, what would you like that to be? A single message. You have more control of your environment and your subconscious programming than you think you do by embracing this notion that you can hack yourself by hacking the environment around you and hacking your behavior and thought patterns. You can reach levels of performance that you probably never imagined were real for you. Wow. Hack the environment to hack yourself and you can reach levels of performance never imagined. I like that. Awesome. Dave Osprey, thank you so much for being with us today. Nicola, it was awesome. Thank you. Great interview. 
singularity.